distinguished historian uh, from the University of Maryland at, at Orlando Park, Dr. Jeffrey, Professor Jeffrey Herf. Um, and um, I have had the pleasure of hearing uh, Professor Herf give a few seminars. Um, you probably don't know, but he, uh, um, one of his most famous ones was at NYU. Um, shortly after Tony Jude wrote a piece in the New York Times about uh, Israel Bobby. Um, and Dr. Herf received his bachelor's degree um, in, um, from the University of Wisconsin. Uh, and um, he got a um, master's from SUNY Buffalo and a PhD in sociology from uh, my own alma mater, Brandeis University. His most recent publications include Divided Memory, the Nazi Past in Two Germanys, Harvard University Press, 1997, which was the American Historical Association's George uh, Lewis Beer Prize. He's um, got the Jewish enemy, Nazi propaganda during World War II and the Holocaust, <coughs> um, Harvard University Press 2006, uh, which was the winner of the National Book Award uh, for the work on the Holocaust, and Nazi propaganda um, and the Arab world. Um, I, that's one of the papers I've heard him give, which was awarded the German Studies Association uh, Sibyl Milton Prize for work on Nazi Germany and the Holocaust. And was the bond, won the bronze prize for the Washington Institute for Near East Policy. How am I doing so far? In here? I think that's enough. <laughs> <laughs> uh, in addition to that, he is uh, uh, he's just even better than that. Um, is it enough? Okay, so today, um, uh, today, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Herf uh, uh, gives a talk that draws on the research in, uh, that he's doing, he's currently doing. Um, on the era of secular anti-Zionism, uh, secular, secular anti-Zionism in East Germany, I suppose those are archives that um, you know are, are right now becoming much more available. Um, please uh, join me in welcoming uh, Professor Burke. Thank you. Um, uh, I, I'm here because uh, I couldn't say no to Charles Small, uh, and Charles is caught in traffic uh, at the moment and, and should join us uh, shortly. I, I miss Tony Judd very much. Um, I remember the seminar that you, you mentioned. And we, uh, Tony was a very fine historian and we agreed about 80% of the time. And uh, if you agree with somebody about 80% of the time, that's, that's more than enough to, uh, to have a relationship of mutual friendship and respect. And even if we profoundly disagree Very sad that he's not, not here. Um, the uh, um, with this audience and this institute, uh, I want to, toward the end of the talk, raise this question of the relationship between secular anti-Zionism and the Islamist anti-Semitism that has uh, been prominent in the last decade and a half or so. Um, and that has preoccupied Charles and, and led to the formation of... Um, uh, Sorry, could you speak up a little bit? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that has preoccupied uh, Charles Small and led to the, the formation of this... Uh, of this uh, oh, there, there's a mic. That's yeah. it. Um, uh, of this institute. Um, the, um, this this uh, work in progress is a sequel 
to a book that I wrote in 1997, uh, Divided Memory. And the one half of Divided Memory is about the suppression uh, uh, and repression of the Jewish question in East Germany. And exa I examined the, the East German chapter of a Soviet bloc-wide phenomenon called the anti-cosmopolitan purges. And what the purges meant after 1953 was that to be a communist, uh, or to be a member of a communist party, was to be an anti-Zionist. One could not be a supporter of the state of Israel, or an advocate of Zionism, and remain within the communist movement, or communist parties. Uh, now, uh, the, um, this was not the case, now, and in West Germany, the, the German Communist Party was banned so the Communist Party was not a factor in West German politics. And, and young, the generation that came of age after the war in West Germany was, was uh, generally liberals and left-leaning young people were pro-Israeli and traveled to Israel and worked on kibbutzim and the like. Um, uh, and as you know, the West German left became famous in West Germany and Europe and really around the world for its um, for the activities of several hundred people who were engaged in uh, two decades of very very violent terrorism, such as the Red Army faction, the Revolutionary Cells, Bader-Meinhof gang, um, uh, and this group these groups generated a great deal of attention in the media. There's a actually there's a good film called the Bader-Meinhof Complex. Maybe some of you have seen it. Uh, uh, and a lot of the tension, attention that uh, has been devoted to the question of post-war Germany and the Middle East has been devoted to these, to the questions of West German terrorism. Now, I've been doing research in the files of the East and the West German governments at the time, and the files of the West German Interior Ministry, comparable to our Justice Ministry, um, uh, contain fascinating records of government uh, cases and the, the files of the West German Supreme Court as well, attorney, the, the, the uh, counterpart to the Attorney General, very detailed records about the, uh, uh, what the various terrorist organizations were doing. When the West German police, uh, the special police units that were devoted to dealing with the, the terrorist groups, raided a safe house in West Berlin, Frankfurt, Hamburg, uh, Heidelberg, uh, they would find maybe five pistols, two machine guns, uh, some material for explosives, uh, the kind of material needed to engage in bank robberies, uh, political assassinations, uh, and uh, bombing of an airline office perhaps, or uh, uh, um, and uh, serious stuff, serious stuff. Uh, over the period of 1970-1992, the Red Army faction uh, murdered about 34 people, um, which is a pittance compared to what terrorists have done in recent years, but it was, it was a lot. Now, interest, interestingly enough, East Germany uh, did not engage uh, in terrorism in West Germany, but East Germany was far more consequential than the West German terrorists for events in the Middle East, and for a very simple reason. The West German terrorists were the extreme wing of a left-wing social movement. Uh, the East German government was a government. It had 
embassies in the Middle East, it had intelligence um, uh, uh, organizations, it had a military, it, 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 the whole scale of what it could offer to the Middle East uh, was uh, of a whole different dimension. And it was a member of the Warsaw Pact, uh, aligned to a, a military superpower, the Soviet Union. So in fact, well, East Germany has aroused far less interest in recent decades uh, in the media, it was far more important than the Red Army faction and the revolutionary cells uh, and June 2nd movement for what was actually going on in the conflict in the Middle East. So that's why I wanted, uh, tonight, I want to turn our gaze to the German Democratic Republic or the GDR. In the book that I'm working on, I will have a lot to say about the Red Army faction and the revolutionary cells in the West German scene. But tonight I want to talk about uh, the East Germans. And the conclusion um, that, uh, that I've arrived at is that the East German government was in something approaching a state of war with the state of Israel. And that if its policies and the policies of its Warsaw Pact allies in the Soviet Union had succeeded, the state of Israel would have been destroyed. Um, uh, in the 1970s or 1980s. And the reason that the state of Israel was not destroyed uh, was, of course, primarily what the Israelis had done, but also the United States. Um, and I think that uh, uh, one, of the, one of the things that historians do, you know, is to remind us of how things looked at, in the past before uh, looking back at them through the prism of 1989. Uh, in 1973, which I'll get to in a bit, during the Yom Kippur War, things looked very dire for Israel. And, uh, and uh, it was as a result of the American resupply operation that the Israelis were able to recover from their initial losses. Um, but there were other resupply operations going on on the Soviet and, uh, side, including those of East Germany. Now I want to talk about those later. Now, <clears throat> the, the reason that East Germany um, was so antagonistic to Israel uh, had several sources. Uh, first, uh, the East Germans were communists. That is, they were Marxist-Leninists. And we don't think about that enough or think it through. And as Marxist-Leninists, they are, but they believe that the global economy was dominated by United States global imperialism and that the United States and uh, the Western European and Japanese capitalists were responsible for the impoverishment and suffering of most of the world, uh, and that the uh, state of Israel had become what they called a spearhead of American imperialism in the Middle East. So uh, uh, th this was a genuine conviction based on communist ideology. Now then there were other motivations. The Soviet motivation was to win the Cold War against the United States. And how could that be done? Well, many ways, of course. But one way would be to, to grab the oil uh, jugular of the West European economies um, and uh, support the Arabs in that way and uh, uh, try to um, uh, strike a blow uh, against a vulnerable Western Europe in that way. Israel stood in the way on that, in that way, uh, along those lines. And third, the East German government uh, was uh, responding to a diplomatic offensive that had been launched by the West German government. Uh, this offensive began in 1955, and it was named after a man named Walter Hallstein. And 
Walter Hallstein was a uh, diplomat, uh, a kind of a, you know, a deputy secretary of state in the Adenauer government. And the Hallstein doctrine claimed, declared that the Federal Republic of Germany, Western, would not recognize any government that recognized the German Democratic Republic. And the purpose of the Wallstein Doctrine was to isolate East Germany, to undermine its legitimacy, uh, and hopefully to bring about the collapse of the regime. Um, uh, so the East, one of the primary goals of East German diplomacy in the East German Foreign Ministry in the 1960s, 50s and 60s, was to break the Hallstein Doctrine and to gain diplomatic recognition outside, of course, East Germany was recognized by Czechoslovakia, Hungary, Soviet Union, Bulgaria, uh, Poland, uh, but to gain diplomatic recognition outside the Warsaw Pact. Um, now, the way that the um, East Germans were hoping to break the Hallstein Doctrine was to do it first with the Arab states. So we, so the, um, by, by convincing them and, present, and, and presenting evidence that East Germany was a firm antagonist of the state of Israel, just as they were, and therefore East Germany was in a common struggle with them. Um, the um, 
So June of 67 for the West German left is a turning point. It is a break point. And it was kind of a breaking point for the West, for the American New Left too. Less, less has been written about it, but, um, but, it, but, but uh, uh, those of you who know something about Marty Peretz's political biography uh, will uh, recognize the importance of 1967 as well in American intellectual and political life. In East Germany, June of 67 was not a turning point. It was not a turning point. It was a manifestation of long-held beliefs that had been percolating and developing uh, since the anti-cosmopolitan purges of 53. Now, to the outside world, and the world that wasn't paying close attention to developments within East Germany, it came as a stunning revelation and a shock when, uh, on June 15th, Walter Ulbricht, the uh, general secretary of the Socialist Unity Party and the, and the leader of the East German government, gave a speech in Leipzig. Gave a speech in Leipzig. Um, before he gave that speech, um, the, uh, uh, the Politburo had met and the ministerial uh, council had denounced Israel's aggression. In the pages of this newspaper, Neues Deutschland, New Germany, the official paper of the East German government, Israel had attacked Egypt and Syria in order to crush the attempts of Egypt and Syria to take a non-capitalist path and that it was part of the global strategy of U.S. imperialism to expand its influence in the Middle East. And you will find nothing in, in Neues Deutschland uh, in these decades that Israel had faced any threat whatsoever. And so the history of Israel, as it is presented in the communist press, is a history of continuous oppression, exclusion, um, uh, of denial of rights to the Palestinians. There is no, no redeeming feature whatsoever to the state of Israel. It is just a continuous story of, uh, of really political evil and injustice. Um, at no point is Israel faced with any legitimate threats. Um, this is a, those of you who have read communist newspapers, the communist government newspapers of this period will recognize a lots of gray type. Uh, this was typical. This was the background to Israeli aggression. This was uh, written by the foreign ministry on page two of Neues Deutschland that month. Um, the, this is a declaration uh, this, uh, of the Central Committee of the Communist Parties and governments of Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Yugoslavia, Poland, the Soviet Union, and Hungary, again, denouncing Israeli aggression and expressing solidarity with the Arab states. Uh, and this is a text in Neues Deutschland uh, from Walter Ulbricht's speech um, on June 15th uh, of 1967. And uh, uh, this is a photo of, uh, it's on, quality photo, but that's, that's Ulbricht coming to the speech. Um, and uh, this is Ulbricht and his wife uh, arriving in Leipzig on June 15th. Now, what did he say? <clears throat> um, and here's where this group um, is, this is one, one more point in which I hope this evening's discussion will be, will be fruitful. The Islamists claim that Israel is, is an enormously powerful uh, force in world history 
and is part of a global conspiracy, a leading factor in a global conspiracy. Um, the communists did not use the conspiracy theories of the protocols of the old <coughs> um, uh, Rather, the focus, the center of communist argument was Leninist. And Israel was not the key uh, opponent. The key opponent was the United States and what Leipzig, what, what Ulrich called its global strategy. Um, the, um, the cause of the Six-Day War, he said, did not lie in Arab threats to destroy Israel, the movement of Arab armies closer to Israel's borders, uh, but in the desire of the imperialist colonial rulers to prevent the Arab countries from attaining economic independence, to exploit the, reason, the, the region. Um, and Israel, he said, had brought shame and disgrace on itself by playing the role of an imperialist aggressor against the Arab states. Uh, moreover, he attacked West Germany for its restitution payments to Israel, uh, while this was a source of pride in West Germany, uh, Ulbricht just thought this was uh, an effort to buy respectability, a cynical effort that was again part uh, simply of global uh, imperialism. Uh, Ulbricht also said that the, um, the Israeli aerial attack on the Egyptian and Syrian air forces could not have taken place had it not been for the United States. And he described the United States as a major weapon supplier of Israel. Um, now those of you who are somewhat familiar with the Six-Day War will recall that the Israeli Air Force was composed of French Mirage jets and that the United States was not a major military supplier uh, of Israel at all before 1967. Nevertheless, the, the, the association of Israel with the despised Americans was an of the and moreover, moreover, the language was very incendiary. Uh, now, in the interest of world peace, the Middle East aggressor must be held in check. The world, he said, cannot accept that a quarter century after the Second World War, the aggressor Israel and its men behind the scenes, the Hintermenner, created what he called a Sinai Protectorate, or a general government of Jordan, for renewed colonial oppression. Now, by using terms such as Sinai Protectorate, and the general government of Jordan, he knew exactly what he was saying. And he evoked the language that he knew his listeners would associate with Nazi Germany's policies in Eastern Europe in World War II. This association of the State of Israel with Nazi Germany remained an, an enduring element of communist Arab, Palestinian, and West German and West German, le uh, West German leftist anti-Zionism over these decades. So the, the, um, the, the, the ultimate evil uh, of modern politics is Nazism, and the uh, so in in, in Ulbricht's speech, uh, speech here, uh, uh, there are there are, there are hints of associating the Israelis uh, with the Nazis. The Soviets were enraged over the uh, uh, Arab defeat of 1967. They were furious because they were confident that their MiG 21s, their Kalashnikovs. Their artillery, their anti-aircraft weapons, were vastly superior to anything in the Israeli arsenal. So how could they have pumped the Israeli governments full of superior weapons, which the Vietnamese were using, uh, uh, to such a, a good effect? Uh, and the Arabs have lost. Well, there was a deficiency of military training and ideological outlook in the Arab armies, and so after 1967, the Soviet Union 
was determined to rearm the Arabs and to engage in uh, more significant training. And so one of the interesting things that begins to happen then in the following years is a, an extensive program of uh, rearmament and training and many young Arab officers uh, spend one, two, three years in Budapest, uh, uh, Prague, Moscow, East Berlin, um, and uh, those ties between the Russians and the Syrians in particular, well, I'll say more about Syria later, go back a long way. And though lots of friendships and lots of uh, connections go back, way, go way back to the 60s. So it's no surprise uh, that Putin is so emphatic on protecting uh, uh, Assad today. Uh, the, um, one of the questions for research uh, is what we'll call the autonomy issue. Uh, East Germany was totally dependent on the Soviet Union for its survival. Um, uh, if the Red Army had pulled out of East Germany uh, at any time between 1949 and 1989, that would have been the end of East Germany. Uh, so it is a mistake to present the East Germans as a completely autonomous group who have uh, clearly they're coordinating their foreign policy with the Soviet Union. But I have not seen evidence of a lack of enthusiasm uh, among the East Germans regarding the attack on Israel. And in 1969, um, Ulbricht wrote to Leonid Brezhnev uh, to propose that East German volunteers join what he called a war of attrition against Israel. Uh, that is, and send young East Germans to fight against the Israelis. Nothing came of it, probably because Brezhnev understood that Ulbricht's proposal was a propaganda disaster, uh, that if East German soldiers were actually fighting against the Jewish state, uh, it, this would not be easy to explain to anybody uh, outside of the East German Politburo. Now, then, um, those of you who know my work know that, that I'm interested in politics and ideas, and I write a lot about ideas. But uh, I, in this project, I'm also interested in, uh, as it were, when, when the rubber hits the road, uh, the consequences of ideas. Um, in particular, uh, weapons. I had to expand my German vocabulary doing this research. I didn't know the German terms for Kalashnikov and rocket-propelled grenade and uh, uh, various kinds of explosives. So I've learned a great deal. Um, at the center of the relationship between East Germany and Syria, uh, the Palestine Liberation Organization, um, uh, Iraq, Egypt, Libya, at the center of the military relationship was a man named Heinz Hoffmann, who was not famous. He was born in 1910, he died in 1985, he joined the German Communist Party in 1930, he fought in the Spanish Civil War. He survived the Nazi years of the Soviet Union. He studied in the General Staff Academy of the Soviet Union in 1955-57. He became the defense minister, the deputy defense minister of East Germany in 57, the army chief of staff in 58. And he was the defense minister of the German Democratic Republic from 1960 to 1985. And it was the central figure in the military alliance between East Germany, the PLO, and the Arab states. So the files, the Hoffman files, uh, are in the East German Defense Ministry in Freiburg, and they are fascinating. They are fascinating. Um, you know, we are um, we are in the in the beginnings of uh, at the end of this project. I, of course, I'll want to come up with a figure or figures about how much uh, 
how the, the, the size of arms shipments going from the Soviet bloc as a whole and East Germany. Um, so it's a very much a work in progress, and I'm dealing now with fragments. There's a German historian named Klaus Storkmann who's written a book called um, Geheime Solidarität, Militärbeziehungen und Militärhilfe der DDR und die Dritte Welt, Secret Solidarity, Military Relations and Military Assistance of East Germany to the Third World. It's a like 600 pages book, so there's obviously a lot going on. I've not had time to read it this fall, but I will. Um, uh, so, the, in 1969, a memo from Hoffman's office indicates that East Germany was in contact with the American <coughs> Air Force and Navy and was repairing, repairing MiG-21 jets. Um, it had exported by 1971 29,000 machine pistols uh, and 12 repair kits from MiG-21s to the uh, Egyptians. Um, now, by spring and summer of 1969, the combination of diplomatic support, uh, 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 propaganda support, economic assistance, and military assistance had led to the biggest breakthrough in the history of East German diplomatic history. That is, breaking the Hallstein Doctrine. And the Hallstein Doctrine was broken. The first state to break the Hallstein Doctrine and establish diplomatic relations with East Germany um, was Iraq on April 30th of 1969, became the first non-communist government to establish diplomatic relations with East Germany. Um, the foreign minister of East Germany was a man named Otto Binzer, and he displayed his hostility to Zionism uh, uh, early in the anti-cosmopolitan purges, and in his joint declaration with Foreign Minister Abdul Karim al-Sheikli of May of 69, uh, they stressed uh, their common antagonism the commonalities of struggle against the forces, this is in the communique, of imperialism, neo-Nazism, colonialism, and Zionism, and stress the need for close cooperation um, with all anti-imperialist forces to check the maneuvers of imperialism and Zionism. Um, the, um, uh, in June, East Germany was granted diplomatic relations by Sudan. Hafez al-Assad, the first, uh, established relations between Syria and East Germany on June 5th. And Nasser's Egypt did so, as well as South Yemen, on July 10th of 1969. Um, these are front page stories in Neues Deutschland in which Nasser thanks Walter Ulbricht for the speech he gave in Leipzig. Um, uh, <clears throat> in October of 1971, Hoffman led an East German military delegation. This is Heinz Hoffman, and uh, this is Admiral, um, what's Werner's first name? Um, the um, uh, Admiral Werner, oh here it is, um, uh, Waldemar Werner. Um, uh, that's the, East, the leadership of the Eastern military. And here are the leaders of the Syrian military, meeting in Damascus in October of 1971. Uh, and one of the people sitting at the table on the Syrian side um, became the chief of the Syrian general staff, was named Mustafa Tlas, T-L-A-S-S. -S. 
some of you, the name Talas may ring a bell for some of you careful New York Times readers, um, because his, his grandson, or nephew, or one, one of his younger relatives, um, fled uh, Syria about six months ago, uh, uh, broke with the uh, Assad regime, and I believe is in Paris at the moment. But Mustafa Talas uh, is at the center of the relationship between East Germany, the military relationship between East Germany and Syria. Uh, at this, during, at, uh, during the week that uh, Hoffman and the delegation were there, Tlaas informed Hoffman of a very surprising thing, that an East German communist would really not be too pleased to hear. Um, I'll, it's tempting to read the German, but I'm assuming point. So uh, this is my translation. Uh, he informed Hoffman of his, quote, unlimited admiration of the fascist blitzkrieg strategy and of the actual accomplishments of the bourgeois German military. That is, Klaas was one of those Arabs who remembered fondly um, the military successes of the Nazi regime in Europe uh, and of the military accomplishments of the Wehrmacht. So he expressed serious interest in delivery of Warsaw-packed tanks and big fighter jets. And then Hoffman gave an interview uh, to several interviews to the Syrian press. And here's an example. Uh, in reality, both of our peoples are fighting together against the imperialist and Zionist forces. We in the GDR fight our border, if I, on our border against our enemy, the NATO countries. This enemy is the strongest partner of the American imperialists in Europe, namely West Germany. The American imperialists always stand behind West Germany. In the same way, you here fight against Israel. It too is a partner of the USA. Israel is the bridge for the imperialists in the Middle East. So both of the states, Syria and East Germany, had something in common. They were on the border with the enemy and fighting against imperialism. They were in a common struggle. And Hoffman expressed confidence that we would defeat our common enemy because the struggling people will always win in the end. And there's another point that I want to repeat about the 1970s. That uh, because of the, uh, the remarkable you know, collapse of the Soviet Union and the end of the Cold War uh, with the collapse of the communist states, we forget that in the early 70s and mid-70s, there were many, many communists around the world who thought that they might win the Cold War. That they would, um, uh, that, that uh, the American defeat in Vietnam uh, would be followed by other victories, um, and uh, and Hoffman's uh, Hoffman's letters and memos uh, uh, express that sentiment, and so too, so too, do the letters of another very prominent figure in the East German uh, era uh, uh, relations, and that of course is Yasser Arafat. Uh, in 1970. East Germany became the first of the Warsaw Pact states to uh, open an office for the Palestine Liberation Organization, and so in East Berlin. Now at the time, you recall, the charter of the, of the PLO called for a one-state solution that would eliminate the Jewish state, and it was engaged in terrorist attacks on civilians in Israel. Uh, the, uh, I assume there are some students here, and uh, people might want to do research. Uh, the files of the United Nations are a gold mine. Um, and uh, please use them. Uh, it, it's ridiculously easy to do so. Go to a library 
and look at something called the UN yearbook. And each UN annual yearbook will have a little chapter on some big event of that year. And all the Middle East always is. There's always something going on there. So you look at the, read the chapter, and then at the end of the chapter, there'll be these archival citations. So you go to your computer at home, and you type in UN official document system, and type in that archival citation. And lo and behold, you will then see the speech that Israeli Ambassador Joseph Takua gave describing this or that attack on Kiryat Shimona, or a letter that Chaim Herzog uh, sent uh, to the Secretary General, uh, or the reply by the Jordanians or the Lebanese or the Syrians denouncing the Israel. It's all there and it's very easy to get. The Security Council documents are already all online. The General <coughs> Assembly files um, are in, a, in, I don't know if Fordham is a UN depository, but certainly I would assume Columbia and, uh, and NYU are. Uh, and and uh, certainly near the New York Public Library, and then you can get all the UN documents. And there's an enormous amount there, and it's so easy to get at. Um, uh, well, the um, uh, and there's a lot of description by the Israeli delegation to the United Nations, uh, almost day by day in this period, of this and that attack on this and that village, and how many people were wounded. Who was captured? And the detail is astonishing. Um, uh, now, Arafat um, uh, visited East Berlin. Oh, this is a, uh, a fun photo. This is uh, this is Hafez al Assad uh, in 1978 visiting East Berlin as the Brandenburg Gate. This is Gerhard Grunenberg, the point man in the Politburo for Middle East policy. Uh, um, uh, Arafat visited East Berlin frequently in the 1970s and 1980s. Um, um, now, um, after the Munich massacre at the Olympics, uh, carried out by an organization called Black September, Arafat publicly denied PLO involvement. Western intelligence agencies assumed that Black September was one of many organizations he had helped to create that would give him plausible deniability when they engaged in such activities. On September 17th of 1972, that is um, just two weeks after the attack in Munich, Arafat wrote to Walter Ulbricht, excuse me, he wrote to, to Eric Honecker, to, to, to Ulbricht's successor as head of the state and party, Eric Honecker about what he called the action in Munich. And it's a long letter uh, in which he denies that the PLO was responsible for the organization Black September, but he did not directly say the PLO had nothing to do with the action. And most of the letter are used to put the action in the context, uh, in the context uh, into, uh, in, uh, of the general problem and the historical events in all of their political, national, and human dimensions. So that when Honecker and the Politburo read the letter from Arafat, they knew that they were dealing with a man who was offering justifications for the attack in Munich. Um, uh, the, uh, he arrived in first in East Berlin in 1973. With, oh, no, he, met, he met the Politburo for the first time in 1973. Uh, and uh, the, uh, he, um, uh, well, here are some photos. This is Arafat meeting uh, Honecker. Uh, 
again in 1978, uh, in 1982. Uh, this is Arafat in, uh, uh, in 1982 speaking uh, at a, uh, the kind of dinner that one would have, you know, here at the Council on Foreign Relations. Uh, you know, a fancy dinner, everybody's dressed very well, uh, behaving properly. This is Honecker, uh, this is Arafat giving an after-dinner talk. This is a time when Yasser Arafat in many parts of the world is regarded as a leading terrorist and hardly a respectable figure. But they could go to East Berlin and they could be treated with respect. They could go to East Berlin and be treated as they were members of a government. Um, uh, somebody that you spend, you, you sit around the table and have dinner with. And this gentleman here is Farouk Kadumi. Uh, Farouk Kadumi uh, was the foreign minister. He, would, he was in charge of foreign relations with the Palestine Liberation Organization. And he uh, 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 was the um, uh, leading figure uh, representing the PLO in the United Nations. And Kadumi was also a frequent visitor uh, in East Berlin uh, in these years. And there's another photo. This is. Here you have, uh, this is Brunnerberg and Arafat, uh, Hanukkah, and Kadumi um, uh, uh, in, in 1978. Uh, the um, more, more, very interesting, uh, the, uh, uh, this, those of, you, those of you who are familiar with Berlin the, uh, may have stood where the, where, the, where the photographer is standing, because the photographer is standing in the middle of something called the Neue Wache, which is the memorial to uh, victims of fascism and militarism, uh, 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 which is understood as a memorial really to the uh, Red Army as well. And as part of the visit to East Berlin, honored guests, heads of state, would visit the memorial and express their condolences. Uh, and pay respects to the memories of those who have been killed by Nazi Germany. So here is Arafat, that's Grunerberg, Kadumi. I'm not sure who this, this gentleman is. That might be myself, but I'm not sure. Um, uh, there's a photo of Kadumi doing the same thing, uh, uh, not on the same occasion. Um, there's Grunerberg and Arafat. The history of communism is a history of friendships, of personal connections of people who met each other all over the world over many, many years. It's a huge world. The hist and, and the historians have only begun to scratch the surface of the real history of international communism. When people hear the phrase international communism, they think Rosa Luxemburg, they think Lenin, they think Zimmerwald, they think Kienthal, they think the 1920s and 30s, as if international communism ceased to exist after that. No, international communism it, it had a lot to do with airplanes and hotels and conferences and, and, and uh, uh, people really, you know, from all over. The last thing the East Germans were was isolated. Mm -hmm. They had friends all over the world, all over the world, all over the third world. Um, they became famous and popular at the United Nations um, uh, for their antagonisms uh, to the United States and, and to... Uh, Zionists. Um, the uh, the um, uh, agreements that were signed that are in the archives of the, the Politburo uh, in Berlin 
uh, by Arafat and Grunenberg on you know, August 2nd of 1973 included East Germany's commitment to, quote, support the Palestine Liberation Organization with deliveries of equipment of a non-civilian nature. Um, in 75, the agreement was renewed, um, and um, uh, the agreements also included treatment of wounded uh, fighters in East German hospitals uh, and uh, fellowships, or not fellowships, but money for students from East Germany to come study, uh, in, from the Middle East to come study in East Germany. Uh, uh, the um, uh, oops, me. Uh, the, um, I'm going to skip a few things here. Um, I want to turn to intelligence cooperation. Now, a striking aspect of the discussions of these gentlemen is the complete absence of euphemism. When they're sitting in, when they're, when they're talking to one another, there is no joke about how one's man, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom. No, even, they don't even use the term revolutionary violence, not to mention counter-violence. They're simply talking about terrorism. They understood very well that terrorism was the intentional use of violence against non-combatants, and that it was part of the, of the political arsenal of the communist parties 
and of the quote, National Liberation Struggle. When they spoke in the United Nations, of course, they didn't speak that way. And there were big battles in the United Nations about you know, what is terrorism? And the Soviet Third World Bloc was attempting to redefine the term and redefine terrorism in, in, in that context as legitimate revolutionary violence. But when they were in, when they were just being perfectly frank with one another, uh, they spoke the truth. Now, why would they cooperate? Not in order to stage terrorist attacks in West Germany. Why not? East Germany, you will recall, was in a, a state of detente uh, with West Germany. And the Soviet Union as well, and the Eastern Bloc, were receiving large amounts of money from the West Europeans. Um, and East Germany was receiving large amounts of money from West Germany. So the East German government did not want to put detente at risk. And certainly, one way of putting detente at risk would be to stage terrorist attacks in West Germany. To, to offer evidence that, in fact, Ulrich Meinhof and uh, Andreas Bader and uh, C, uh, uh, Wilfried Brüse were being trained and funded and supported, and they organized the attacks in East Germany. Now, if that had happened, the West German government would have said, forget about it. No more money. Uh, forget Ostpolitik. Forget all this nicey-nicey about German-German relations. You're trying to kill us. You know, forget it. So the, it was very important that the East German government know where Carlos is. Where is Bader? Where, are, where is the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine? Where is Wadi Haddad? Where is George Habash? Where is, who is this kid who just flew from Beirut and landed at berlin Schönefeld Airport? What the hell is he doing here? We need to know. Because this guy is not going to go to West Germany and blow something up. He is not going to do that. You understand? And so we need your assistance. We want to know where everybody is. And they did. That was the purpose of the cooperation. To prevent terrorist attacks in West Germany and Western Europe. That could be traced back to East Germany. You want to engage in terrorist attacks against the Zionist enemy? That's a whole different matter. That's a whole different matter. And uh, the, um, uh, the, um, The Stasi files do have evidence uh, about weapons. We don't, we're not yet at the point of a, an adequate number or a, uh, uh, of the full extent of Soviet bloc and East German armed assistance to the Arab states and the PLO in this period. One thing that I also want a, a research note to bring to your attention is that millions of files of the Central Intelligence Agency have been de declassified. And there is something called the CREST system, C-R-E-S-T. So if you go to the National Archives in Washington, you can sit at a computer and you type in a keyword, East Germany uh, terrorism, East German weapons delivery, East Germany PLO, something like that. Hit the, uh, hit the uh, uh, enter and a whole bunch of files will turn up. And then you read them and if you like it, you just hit print and you print it, up, print it out for free at the printer that's next to the computer. So. Uh, it's really difficult research. Right? Um, uh, this is research for dummies, um, and uh, so if you do, if you uh, historians, Mark Kramer at Harvard tells me that the crest there's there's now efforts to put the crest files online. 
I don't know if that's going to happen. If so, it'll be a huge resource. Uh, a lot of undergraduate senior theses, graduate students, where researchers, we know, uh, uh, remarkable amount uh, of material. But fragments are better than nothing. On August 4th of 1980, the Ministry of State Security delivered the following items to the Palestine Liberation Organization. Uh, 2,000 um, Kalashnikov machine guns, 5,000 hand grenades, 750 plastic explosives of 200 grams, 370 explosives of 400 grams. On April 11th of 1980, it sent another 5,000 hand grenades. Uh, uh, in uh, 1982, uh, before the war in Lebanon, uh, it sent another 1,400 machine guns, uh, the uh, anti-tank anti rifles. Uh, now, the um, uh, that's these are the kind of things that uh, a guerrilla movement um, uh, needs, and they are a significant amount of lethal force, orders of magnitude larger than what the Western, the very famous Western terrorists had at their disposal. Um, my, uh, uh, <clears throat> let me see. didn't have a state. It didn't have the, the power and the resources that a state has. Um, East German arms deliveries to the Arab states began in the mid-60s. And here is where the War of 1973, the Yom Kippur War, uh, is interesting. It's particularly well documented in the defense, East German Defense Ministry files. Um, the relationship between East Germany and Hafez al-Assad, Syria, stood at the center of these efforts. Uh, the, um, <clears throat> this is a map, which I found in Freiburg, in the East German Defense Ministry file. Um, this is a map, uh, again, it's you know, not easy to see here, but uh, the real map is about as big as this. And clearly, there was a labor of love. Somebody wanted this. This map was on the the wall of offices in some somebody's office in the East German Defense Ministry, and it is a map of the voyage of two ships, the Klosterberg and the the, the Klosterfeld and the Freiburg, uh, in October of 1973, from East Germany to Syria. Um, and again, East Germany was small, 17 million people, didn't compare with the power of the Soviet Union. Uh, uh, but as a historian of Germany, I am interested in the, the fact that any German government would be sending arms to people who were at war with Israel. Um, now, the, the cargo on these two ships was of 2,200 tons of military equipment. And it included 62 Soviet T-54 tanks, 
with the necessary experts and ammunition, 300 anti-tank rifles with 24,000 shells, 75,000 grenades, 30,000 landmines. At the same time, a squadron of 12 MiG-21 jet fighters of the East German Air Force were flown by East German pilots um, to Syria, uh, and the planes were then flown in combat against the Israeli Air Force by Syrian, but apparently also by Soviet pilots. Uh, this is what is called Operation Aleppo, and the, the, the German uh, journalist, uh, Stefan Meining, television journalist, has, has, has written about this, and I think done a television program about it. Now, the, um, these 2,200 tons was a fraction of what the Soviet Union was sending, and it was also a small fraction of the massive resupply operation ordered by President Nixon and Henry, and then Henry Kissinger called Operation Reforger, which um, led to uh, some 15, 18 flights a day of these enormous uh, C-17 uh, transports that resupplied the Israeli Israelis in this very crucial moment. I think the October of 1973 underscores, as, as few things have done in the post-war period, um, just how important the United States became for the survival of Israel. Um, uh, had that not happened, um, who knows what would have happened, taken place. Uh, I, here at Fordham, I mean, I don't know if there's an Irish faction in the audience, um, uh, but if there is, two cheers for you, um, because I want to say a few words about Daniel Moynihan. Um, the speech that he gave on November 10th of 1975, in retrospect, strikes me as one of the most important speeches of the last half century, and one of the most important speeches in the history of the Cold War. Because it was Daniel Moynihan, and the Moynihan papers of the Library of Congress, which I've read, are interesting, fascinating. Letters uh, from uh, uh, Norman Podhoritz and uh, from uh, Charles Frank at Yale, uh, as, as Moynihan was composing the speech. Because Moynihan's speech, rejecting the Zionism as racism resolution, was a turning point, an intellectual ideological turning point in the history of the Cold War. He was the first person, Kissinger didn't do it, he was the first leading Western statesman who challenged communist anti-Zionism and left-wing anti-Zionism. Uh, he said, when fate, after the General Assembly had passed the Zionism as racism resolution, he said, the United States does not acknowledge, will not abide by, and will never acquiesce in this infamous act. Great evil has been loosed upon the world. The abomination of anti-Semitism has been given the appearance of international sanction. He said, if, as the Soviet delegate had proposed, racism is a form of Nazism, and if, as this resolution, Zionism is a, is a form of racism, then we have step by step taken ourselves to the point of proclaiming, the United Nations is solemnly proclaiming that Zionism is a form of Nazism. With innuendo and by implication, this was indeed what the Soviet Union and the East German propagandists had been claiming with growing ferocity since 1967, when they declared that every one of Israel's military operations was an unprovoked act of aggression, a blitzkrieg, a campaign of extermination that rested on racism and chauvinism towards Arabs. 
And these actions, according to the East Germans and the Warsaw Pact allies, and according to the PLO, were the essence of Zionism, and, the, and thus the reason that no compromise with such an evil was possible or desirable. It was why Arafat wrote, as he signed his letters to Hanukkah, that the revolution had to be conducted to victory, which would only mean the end of the Jewish state, presumably based as it was on racism and imperialism. In November of 1975, Daniel Moynihan became the first major political figure of the Western Alliance to say clearly and publicly that what we have here is a lie, he said, a political lie of a variety well known to the 20th century and scarcely exceeded in all that analog on truth and outrage. And the lie is that Zionism is a form of racism. The overwhelmingly clear truth is that it is not. Um, well, whoever is our, our new ambassador to the United Nations better do as, as well as Moynihan in the very difficult months to come, I hope. Now, I want to close with some questions that I think are pertinent to the purposes of this institute. Uh, the communists, as I said, hated Israel first and foremost because they were communists after the anti-cosmopolitan versions. And they associated Israel with global imperialism. They didn't hate Israel because they hated Judaism. They didn't hate Israel because they had quotes from the Quran that called Jews apes and pigs. They hated Israel because they hated imperialism and capitalism. The East Germans um, hated Israel uh, because it was effective diplomacy to gain recognition, um, uh, and also because they were very orthodox uh, communists. Um, uh, but I do think that it's accurate to say that East Germany was in a state of war with Israel. I haven't really come across a better term to describe it. It wasn't just antagonism, it wasn't just hostility, it wasn't misunderstanding. Uh, this was war. And if they had succeeded, and if the Soviet bloc had succeeded, they would have destroyed the state of Israel in one of the wars. Now, that raises the question of what is the connection between what I've been discussing this evening and what Charles has been preoccupied with, uh, uh, namely Islamist anti-Semitism. Nobody is going to argue if they read the Hamas Charter or they read what Osama said or they look at the the uh, the the, 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 uh, the, the, the imams of the Muslim Brotherhood. Um, no one's really going to argue that these people don't hate Jews as Jews and that their hatred of Israel is because they hate the Jews, not because they have some economic and political theory about uh, a global imperialism. So uh, they're different. They're not the same thing. So what is the historic significance, then, of secular anti-Zionism? Uh, and I think I'll just throw this out, because this is a work in progress, and I'm interested in discussion. I'm not presenting my you know, final conclusions. I think that secular anti-Zionism softened up global opinion. I think that was one of its most important functions. It softened up global opinion, and it made it respectable to despise Israel, um, to describe Israel in the most negative terms as racist and imperialist, um, uh, and that it led to habituation for decades of uh, leftist anti-Zionism. Perhaps this habituation explains in part why there has been a certain reluctance, I don't want to generalize, but a certain reluctance uh, in liberal opinion, certainly in Europe and to some extent here, 
uh, a certain reluctance to be quite as critical about the Islamists when they denounce Israel as one might expect. Um, perhaps the secular anti-Zionism uh, that was dominant in the 60s, 70s, and 80s um, served a kind of protective cover and an advance guard, a kind of a, uh, I'll avoid the sports metaphor, but a, but a, a, a sort of an, a, a blocking force that broke through taboos uh, that's, that has made it easier for the more virulent uh, Jew hatred of recent years uh, to emerge and flourish. So um, that is what I have to say this evening. And, uh, yeah. All right. So I'll look, I have a few uh, um, comments, questions, not in any uh, good order, so I apologize. Uh, one, one element that, uh, you know, that I'm surprised you haven't mentioned, and, and it could be that it's the, the footnoting I'm giving is not a, a good one, but I recall uh, watching some documentary by ABC, I believe, about the relationship between the uh, Stasi and the Munich attacks. Mm. That, um, and, you know, it might be, again, you know, I, I'm, I'm sorry that I don't, I, but I think there is a charge that the, um, those who committed the, the Munich attack um, were actually uh, transported into uh, Germany through East Germany. Through the, uh, that I've not seen. Um, that's possible. But I mean, I, I just like you know, you could. I'm sure you know. One thing. Uh, I, mean, I don't know if it's true or not. Just yeah, I, I I will be looking into it. One thing that that that's, that did happen uh, after the Munich attack was that um, the West German government, and the West, as you can imagine, was embarrassed, humiliated, furious, uh, and uh, uh, the. The, the, the terrorists in Munich made various phone calls during the action um, to people who were members of something called the General Union of Palestinian Students, GUPS, and the General Union of Palestinian Workers, GUBA. And the GUPS had, had, or had members, had, they were the organized, organized groups at about 28 different Western universities. Hans Dietrich Genscher, who became the foreign minister, was the interior minister, and he cracked down that. Goops was banned. Uh, and uh, the, the West German uh, investigative agencies were producing evidence that, that, these, that these people had been involved in uh, preparing the attack and helping. And, so, and several hundred people were deported uh, in the fall and winter of 1972. Um, uh, and some of them, when they were deported, uh, to the Middle East, then came back to East Germany. Uh, so that certainly is well documented. Um, the uh, uh, the uh, and I, I will look into it. Uh, but I, I think, think we can even Google it. You know, uh, I think that I, I remember it was actually. But I have two other questions. That yes. Um, there are, this was a detail. First question. You know, first thing I would I would say is that. Uh, I'm not, you know, there's nothing about this that uh, that is sort of not known about Soviet bloc support for um, um, for the Arab world. Um, I'm not sure that that if, if, if we're going to say that East Germany was at war with the state of Israel, we could say the United States was at war 
with uh, the Arab world because that's it supplied Israel. So I, I mean, I think that there's a there's a, so the, so the, the question here is um, uh, not so much the uh, the fact that you know in the Cold War um, sides lined up one against the other, and um, you know this was a, this is it happened in Vietnam, it happened in the Middle East, it happened everywhere. But I think that the the broader question that you raise is one that I'm very that, that strikes me as very important, and that is um, what is the meaning uh, of this anti-Zionism? Uh, and I think that that, that is a this is a very interesting question that uh, you know I commend you for asking because on some level you know we don't want to go into the McCarthy era uh, condemnation of. of Communism or, or socialism, or something like this, and yet there is this element, there's this kernel of anti-Zionism that comes from there that that is quite powerful. Well, for historians of communism, the um, you know the the poet, the anti-cosmopolitan the anti-cosmopolitan purges for a historian of communism are of enormous significance, uh, and. Uh, Historians of the United States uh, who focus on the McCarthy period or the Rosenberg case dismiss it completely. Communism between 1935 and 1939 and 1941 and 1945 meant solidarity with the Jews. That's, you were a communist. The Jewish question meant you were opposed to anti Semitism, you were opposed to the Nazis and the fascists. That's what being a communist meant. It meant trying to, you know, uh, it, it meant destroying the Wehrmacht, it meant liberating, uh, arriving in Auschwitz, liberating Majdanek. Uh, the communists and the Jews, they're like this, right? Um, and uh, the, uh, the shattering of that uh, bond, uh, illusory though, however it may have been or may not have been, you know, uh, took place between 1949 and 1953, and nothing was ever the same after that. To be a communist after 1953 was to be an anti-Zionist. You could not be a communist and still support the state of Israel. You, uh, 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 and uh, the, we, we um, and there were lots of, there were not a lot of Jewish communists uh, who took this position. There were some. There were, there were, there were some, uh, sort of non-Jewish Jews, Isaac Deutsch's phrase. Um, uh, uh, and we, we, we spent a lot of time asking ourselves, was this anti-Semitism, was it anti-Zionism? And what I, the reason that, I, that, I was, that the talk tonight was sort of mundane um, in some ways was because I'm a little bit, at the moment, less interested in what's going on, what people really feel about Jews. Uh, what I'm more interested in is whether, what they're doing to help kill them. That's, that, that's what I'm most interested in. And, and as a German historian, uh, I'm, I, uh, uh, I find it to be a very important question in modern German history, that if there was a German government after Hitler that was, was sending machine guns to people who were firing them at Jews. Yeah. So, and that's, that's my provincial sort of German historian's question. Uh, David. All right. So you're a German historian. Um, 
But I kept thinking of you know the roads leading back to the Soviet Union, mm -hmm. and I'm wondering if you yet have a sense in your research and what through, through the secondary literature we know of the Soviets' position, how how the study of the East German relationship with Arafat against Israel uh, might enlighten us differently from how the study of the Soviet, the Soviet relationships would. Enlighten us about what? Well, about, about uh, sort of the nature of, for example, secular anti-Zionism, if, if you call it, I think a good term, about uh, the course of uh, the Middle East conflict as it unfolds and the power alliances, that is. I mean, you, you at the beginning, you talk about the question of autonomy, so in a way, maybe I'm trying to get at that, too. Um, but does, does the East German root into the question of Israel's place vis-a-vis -vis the Soviet bloc, Israel's, you know, the, the Palestinians' relationship, tell us something substantially different or, or you know, from, from what a study of the Soviet archives might be, which I know if you haven't looked at Soviet archives might be an unfair question, but... Well, so the Soviets were more vicious uh, and more willing to say blatantly anti-Semitic things than the East Germans were. They, the, the, the Soviet statements, that are, they are tougher and nastier. Uh, so the, the borderline between just old-fashioned anti-Semitism and anti-Zionism in the Soviet case is very thin. Uh, thinner than in East Germany. Uh, you know, um, uh, that's an excellent question. I mean, I, uh, the, it's certainly, what I'm doing will, will add new, there was a, I, th I think East Germany lent legitimacy somehow to anti-Zionism. I think that if there was a German government that was opposed to Israel, somehow that made the, the fight against Israel sort of morally legitimate. If there were German anti-fascist communists who had fought against the Nazis, if they're opposing the Israelis, then maybe there really is that Israel really is godforsaken. I, I hadn't thought about that until you asked this question, but 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 uh, the, the East Germans may have had a kind of maybe in the global left. Maybe they, uh, they, they lent that kind of legitimacy. Um, yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, uh, the, uh, I'm going to think about that. Yeah? I wanted to tie into your closing point about looking at the relationship between what you discussed and contemporary um, Islamic anti-Semitism. I wanted to suggest that perhaps the more interesting connection would be by looking at um, the, the relationship between the contemporary left, which really is what used to be called the new left, which is one, um, and uh, the communist, uh, the, the Warsaw Pact countries, including East Germany, and contemporary uh, Islam. Because we've seen, I mean, what we've seen is clearly, they talk about the Red Green Alliance, but whether you look at uh, Hugo Chavez's warm welcoming among jihadis who have no particular reason to like a Latin American Catholic communist, or the, um, the the folks running around the United States worried about the scourge of Islamophobia. I mean, you're seeing very strange behavior from the West 
that is hugely, from the Western left, that is hugely sympathetic to a movement that at its core would like to kill every member of the Western left. Uh, and, and, and I mean, I think these are, these are the roots of that connection and that sympathy. Well, I think the, the um, I've thought about that, and I, you know, I, uh, I'm trying to reserve in judgment, but the, the, one of the, I, I mean, maybe one thing that, that uh, I was in the New Left, so uh, uh, of course I've thought about this, and uh, when we were in the New Left, uh, we, 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 we thought we were very different than the communists. Uh, they were boring, they were conservative, they were dull, they were, we, we were hip, it was open and interesting, and uh, we, we were bringing a new world, and they were part of the old world. And, um, But in terms of the actual positions regarding events in the world, the banners on the demo, at the demos in West Germany regarding the Israeli-Arab conflict that were there by, <coughs> there by, you know, sponsored by various Marxist-Leninist groups or New Left groups, they weren't so different from the East Germans in terms of their position. They were supporting the PLO, they were supporting the Arab states, they were denouncing Israel. So maybe one thing we need to do is to, is, is to think about how, in terms of the positions that people took, how much difference really was there. Um, the, I, mean, I, I mean, in a way it's not so new. By 1969, the new left was effectively pro-communist. Supporting the victory of these communists in, in, in uh, was not anti-war, and so I, I guess also what I'm saying is is, is not so terrific for you. In, in, in Germany, for example, there were Rudi Dutschke is an interesting figure because he wasn't into the Middle East. That wasn't his bag. He was Vietnam, Latin America, global imperialism. It's interesting. Dutschke did not get into the hate Israel thing. I don't know quite why. Uh, but he had reservations about going down that path. It's not, you know, he was, it's not that there was a moderate Duchka or thing, but he didn't, he, he, he sensed there was something a little amiss. Uh, um, and, uh, you know, Robert Wistrich is, is, is kind of more blunt than I am about all this, and he, he basically describes Marxism and communism as an anti-Semitic tradition. Stresses the similarity of anti-capitalism and anti the association of the Jews with capitalism and that kind of thing. Uh, so, if you write the history of Marxism and communism that way, then the Popular Front of 1935 to 39 and 1941-45 and the anti-fascism of the Second World War are these eight years of exceptional communist-Jewish solidarity after 1917 or after the 1920s. Perhaps. And the, and the norm is a certain skepticism and, and, uh, and mistrust. Uh, but the, um, uh, the, uh, the language of, the, the other thing is that, uh, and here you were just at the beginning of, of really of doing, of, of examining the international left and its connection to, to Islamic organizations in the, in the 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, the, the Islamic organizations around the world uh, were denouncing American imperialism. They, so there's a certain rhetorical overlap that just doesn't go back to the last 10 years. It goes back a long way. 
No, no, of course. Yeah. But I mean, what, what I'm suggesting is that for, for many years, through most of the 20th century, the Western New Left was a minor movement. It was part of the Western Left, and it was never in control anywhere. Whereas the Eastern European communists certainly were a huge and major and important force. Um, but in fact, the Western Left survived the end of the Cold War in town. And so the balance, the balance is shifting. And rather than the communists trying to absorb the Western left, what happened was the new left absorbed the communists. And you've ended up with this, with this um, hybrid movement that is, I mean, in American terms, it's the, uh, you know, today's Democratic Party represents the victory of the Henry Wallace wing over the Harry Truman wing. Well, I don't want to get into that. I don't want to get into that. I mean, you know, there's something to be said for it, not to be said for it. But I will say this. I'll speak as a German historian. I'm not going to put on my political hat too much tonight. Um, the German Studies Association had a 12 panels three years ago devoted to the, the state of the art history of the, of the German Democratic Republic. 40 papers. 30 or 40 papers, 12 panels. Not one dealt with East Germany's relation to the Middle East. So I said, uh, well, what's going on? So the next year I organized a panel. And there was a young German historian, Lutz Mecca, who's finishing a doctoral dissertation on East Germany and the PLO. Another young woman who's doing a dissertation about East Germany and uh, the relations with Yemen. Herman Venker, uh, a professor. Uh, and directs the, the Institute for Contemporary History and Branch in Berlin, author of a huge book about uh, East German foreign policy within the limits of, the Soviet, of Soviet influence. We had a wonderful panel. So why was it that you could have 12 panels and 40 papers and there's no interest in what I was talking about tonight? Is this is like an unimportant issue that East Germany uh, was uh, adopting this kind of policy towards Israel. Of course, there are many panels about coming to terms with the Nazi past and uh, everything about Auschwitz. And, and, and. So, is this the triumph of the Western New Left? Well, most of these people really wouldn't any longer see themselves as leftists, but it, but it is, but these issues didn't get discussed there. And uh, so, uh, I said, now, now uh, this is something that I'll do. Um, the um, I, um, I, I, I would, I guess I, I, it's not just the Western New Left. Uh, and here's where work on the United Nations is important. Um, the, uh, uh, the, uh, the denunciation of Israel at the United Nations uh, beginning in the 60s was, was massive and continuous and, and uh, the, uh, and I think that had an effect. I think it has an effect if you're always being told that, the, that this state is, you know, various forms of evil. Uh, without any association uh, uh, with uh, a lunatic interpretation of the Quran uh, or the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, none of that. It, it, it's maybe, maybe the significance of what I've talked about tonight is that, that uh, these views of Zionism are part of modern political discourse. They're modern political discourse. They're not part of some retrograde vision of returning to the seventh century. Uh, and in that sense, they, they, they become more respectable. 
well, first of all, he would just announce them as, as infidels and you know, hopelessly atheists and uh, all that. Um, uh, but uh, I think this notion of softening up and, and, and making it legitimate not to believe what the Jews are saying is, is an important aspect. Yes? I have a question sort of about that notion of softening up, but particularly the type of material alliances that were motivating East Germany in terms of um, if you take that sort of paradigm for the reasons why there are political relationships during the Cold War, um, when the Cold War ended, how did those um, those relationships, that network of political interests, remain in terms of the salience of certain political? In the summer of 1989, uh, and then even more so in the fall, Arafat and Kadumi uh, wrote very, very. Upset letters to East Berlin. To, what is going on? Uh, uh, they were not at all happy uh, uh, about uh, the uh, protests, uh, about the weakness of the government. And then when the government fell, they were devastated. Um, uh, it was the collapse of communism in Europe that was one indispensable precondition for the, for the Oslo process. There would have been no quote peace process if the PLO uh, and the Arabs had not lost uh, this huge uh, uh, base of support. And it wasn't just weapons. It was, it was military training, it was uh, hospitals, it was money, uh, it was an alliance. So your major alliance partner collapses, you, you have fewer options. And I think that was one reason why Arafat decided to enter into the negotiations. So, uh, I'm not sure if that addresses your well, question. Well, I was wondering about the, the, the discourse of anti-Zionism in, in the United Nations, in, in the international community, how the end of the Cold War affected it, or whether those, those discourses remained um, without the, the material. I haven't looked at the UN uh, uh, in the 1990s. I, my, my, my notion, of, my understanding of the UN is through the newspapers, and, and my sense is that nothing changed. Uh, uh, well, they were repealed. Um, but, yes, you, excuse me, you're right. Yes, yes, yes. That's right. The Zionism uh, is racism resolution in 1992, I think, was was repealed. That's true. Uh, uh, and uh, yes, and that that was a direct result of the uh, of the collapse of the of the Soviet bloc. Uh, but the um, but the ideas about about Israel and its unacceptability uh, remained an important part. Well, the international community, whatever.